Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our annual uh, employment update. Particularly welcome and thank you for coming on such a miserable um, morning, although it doesn't seem to be any different from uh, any other morning at the moment in terms of weather. Um, today we have a sort of veritable feast of employment law. We're going to start off with an update on legislation. The government has pledged to cut that pesky red tape um, to make life much easier for employers. Are those just words or is there any substance to it? So we're going to hand over to uh, Virginia Allen and Catherine Dukes who are going to talk us through that. Uh, we're then going to move on to the cases. We've had some interesting developments in case law this year, um, some fun cases, some cases that may change the way you think about your business. Uh, and Chris Middleton, my fellow partner, is going to update us on the, 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 the main things that you need to be aware of in that context. We're then going to break uh, for coffee um, and followed by that I'm going to talk about some of the trends um, over the last 12 months. I'm going to talk about some of the minefields and I'm going to talk about some of the action points that you may want to bear in mind. Um, and we're going to finish the session off uh, with questions and an employment law surgery. So if you have any questions on any topics, the whole team will be here at the end to deal with those confidentially on a completely complimentary basis. So um, if you have any questions that are relevant just to your organisation, uh, save them up and we'll deal with them then. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to uh, Catherine and Virginia. Good morning. So as David said, uh, there's been a lot of discussion recently about changes to employment law um, and the need to make life easier for employers in the, in the current recession. Um, and probably the most well publicised change which has already taken effect is the reduction of the qualifying uh, period of, in order to bring an unfair dismissal claim which changed from one year to two years on the 6th of April. Um, it doesn't cover employees who were already employed prior to the 6th of April, as you'll probably know, so it's only going to affect employees taken on after that date. And at the same time, um, there was a change in the qualifying period for being given written reasons for dismissal, which has gone up to two years. Now, the stated aim of this change was to increase, increase recruitment activity by uh, reducing the threat of unfair dismissal claims. Um, but whether it's going to achieve that is stated aims is, uh, is an interesting question. Um, the biz department carried out a study which showed that in fact less than 1% of employers were most concerned about unfair dismissal claims when it came to employing staff. Um, and in fact in the, the top 10 list of employment reg regulations which were a cause for concern um, included at number one health and safety and at number two maternity leave. So um, it seems pretty unlikely that we're going to see a flurry of recruitment activity um, in light of this change to the qualifying period. Um, another interesting point is that uh, a study by the OECD showed that the UK already has one of the most liberal systems amongst developed countries when it comes to employment regulation. We're actually joint second with Canada after the US. So this idea that we have a very uh, regulated employment uh, environment doesn't really hold water. The um, other implications which may arise from this change are um, 
that we might see an increase in discrimination and unfair dismissal, uh, sorry, discrimination and whistleblowing claims. Um, and I was already talking to one of the attendees this morning about unscrupulous lawyers who are encouraging individuals to put in a discrimination claim or a whistleblowing claim when they don't have the, the requisite qualifying period to claim unfair dismissal. So we'll have to wait and see whether that risk materialises. Another interesting point about this change is that, in fact, the qualifying period for bringing unfair dismissal claims used to be two years prior to 1999 when it was reduced down to one year. Um, and during the time that it, the, the qualifying period was at two years, there was a challenge brought on the basis that that uh, was indirectly discriminatory against women because women tend to have a um, shorter period of service than men. And that challenge went all the way up to the European Court who said that it potentially was indirect discrimination. So we're going to have to wait and see whether there are going to be similar claims um, along those lines, which might relate not only to uh, sex discrimination but potentially also age discrimination uh, because clearly younger employees are going to have less uh, service than older employees in general. <coughs> there are some other reforms in the pipeline relating to dismissal which haven't yet taken effect. Um, in March this year the government put out a call for evidence on the ACAS code of practice um, and whether that ought to be revised. And what they're particularly concerned about here is um, whether the code of practice as it's currently drafted is accessible enough to smaller employers um, and also whether or not the code of practice deals appropriately with performance management situations um, or whether it's really focused on situations involving misconduct. So we'll have to wait and see what happens there. Now, in the same call for evidence, there was an interesting concept raised around compensated no-fault dismissals. And the idea here is that companies could dismiss an employee without giving any uh, particular reason, um, provided that a set amount of compensation was paid to the employee, and they wouldn't have to go through any formal dismissal procedure. They could still dismiss the employee uh, without paying any compensation in the usual way, but um, were they to go through the, through the compensated no-fault route, the individual wouldn't be able to bring an unfair dismissal claim at all, regardless of their length of service. Now, that might sound pretty attractive, but there are some real limitations to the scope of this proposal. First of all, it's only intended to apply to micro-employers, who are defined as those with 10 or fewer employees. Um, and secondly, it doesn't prevent individuals from um, bringing other claims, such as claims for discrimination or whistleblowing. Um, so employers following this route still wouldn't have peace of mind that there were going to be um, no claims arising. And to my mind, there's a real risk that if you dismiss somebody without giving them any fair reason or following any procedure, that uh, inferences of discrimination could be raised. So um, it could actually end up being quite a risky route to go down. As I say, it's only a proposal, so we'll have to see um, what happens on that front. Um, later this year, there's going to be a consultation on the idea of protected conversations. And um, this hasn't really been fleshed out, but the idea is that employers should be able to have frank and honest conversations with employees, particularly around performance management, without being uh, concerned about those discussions being referred to in subsequent litigation. Um, it's not really clear how this concept would work in practice, and in particular, what if the employer made discriminatory comments during the conversation? Would those still be protected, or, or could the employer find themselves accused of discrimination in an employment tribunal? Um, the second 
concern that comes to mind is why would an employee ever agree to have a protected conversation if that meant a limitation in their subsequent rights to bring a claim. Lastly, the government says that it's going to um, simplify the, the use of compromise agreements and two ways uh, that it's proposing to do this are to introduce model compromise agreements that employers would be able to download, uh, presumably to reduce the involvement of us lawyers. Um, and secondly, they're going to rename compromise agreements settlement agreements. Not sure what that's really going to uh, achieve in practice, but, but, but there we are. Moving on to some um, other legislative reforms that are um, being proposed. The government says that when parliamentary time allows, it's going to close the loophole, as it describes it, in uh, whistleblowing legislation. And what they're referring to here is the Employment Appeal Tribunal case of Parkins and Sodexo, which says that employees can blow the whistle about breaches in their own employment contracts. <coughs> now, the government says that wasn't the aim of the legislation, so they're going to change that so that that loophole, as they call it, is going to be closed. Earlier this year, there was also a call for evidence in relation to collective consultation and TUPI, which closed on the 31st of January. Um, and the government's currently reviewing the results of that call for evidence, and they're going to decide whether to consult on proposed changes later in the year. Some of the sorts of issues that they're thinking about, though, are um, the duration of consultation periods in a collective context, and particularly the 90-day period that applies where you're contemplating redundancies for 100 or more employees. Now, they acknowledge that, in fact, consultation usually doesn't take 90 days, and perhaps it might be more appropriate to reduce that time frame down to 60 days, 45 days, or perhaps even 30 days. And they're also considering whether the time frame should vary depending on the region or the industry sector affected. Now, the government's aware that there are um, also issues around the definition of establishment, which comes into play when you're trying to figure out whether or not you have a duty to collectively consult, um, and they're thinking about whether or not there should be some clarity provided on that. And lastly, there's a, an awareness that um, there are difficulties when it comes to collective consultation on redundancies in a 2 situation. And as the law currently stands, employers cannot consult on 2P and on collective redundancies at the same time, which creates real practical difficulties. So there's a, a consideration of whether that also should change. Turning to 2P reform, um, the key points here are around the effectiveness of the changes that came into effect in 2006 around service provision changes. Uh, and the point behind those changes at the time was to increase certainty for employers um, around whether or not TP would apply. So um, the purpose of the call for evidence was to look at whether those stated aims have been achieved. And I know this is a point that David's going to touch on a bit later on. Secondly, uh, there's an awareness that um, harmonising terms in the context of a 2P transfer is very difficult for the transferee at the moment. And um, one of the options that's being considered is whether employers ought to be able to put transferring employees on new terms and conditions provided that the overall package is no less favourable than their original package, which would certainly be a welcome development from, from employers' points of view. And lastly, um, you'll be aware that there's a potential to dismiss employees fairly following a 2P transfer where there's an economic, technical or organisational reason, known as an ETO reason. And um, at the moment, it's sometimes difficult to know whether or not there is an ATO reason. So the call for evidence is also looking at whether there should be further clarity around that. I'm going to hand over now to Catherine, who's going to talk about some other legislative changes. Hi, everyone. I'm going to talk about changes to the Employment Tribunal procedure, which doesn't sound like the most exciting topic, but 
Um, uh, hopefully it'll be slightly more interesting than it sounds. Um, so from the 6th of April, the um, tribunal procedure has been changed so that judges will sit and hear unfair dismissal claims on their own rather than with a tribunal panel. And also witness statements will be taken as read unless the judge determines otherwise. So that's intended to make the tribunal process quicker and a little easier. Um, and there have also been some changes to um, the deposit orders and costs orders which are set out on the screen. And if you, a, de a deposit order is something that is awarded or, or is um, given when there is little prospect of success of the case and you as a respondent challenge the prospect of success at a pre-hearing review and the judge determines, well actually the case should go forward because there is an arguable case, but to sort of give the claimant some kind of warning or incentive perhaps to withdraw, the judge will order a deposit order is made. So the claimant has to put a deposit into the tribunal to be able to proceed with their case. And the maximum for that has been increased to £1,000. It's not actually something that's used all that often, but perhaps now that the order has, the maximum order has been increased to £1,000, it might be used more in the future. Uh, likewise, costs, um, as you'll know in the employment tribunal, costs are rarely recovered. Um, I'm not necessarily sure that increasing maximum costs order to £20,000 will make it any more likely that you would recover your costs if you were successful in an employment tribunal claim, but that's, that's quite helpful nonetheless. Um, my thought on these changes that have been made already is that they themselves aren't going to make that much difference, but there are proposals in the pipeline, which I'm going to come on to talk to, which are probably more important. So the first of those is that um, the government is proposing that all claims will be subject to a period of conciliation with ACAS before the ET1 can be submitted. And this is going to be a period of one month. Um, the period of conciliation is optional. So if one of the parties refuses to conciliate or if the conciliation is unsuccessful, then it will go forward to claim as normal. If you're in the middle of conciliation and you're getting to the end of the one-month period but you haven't yet come to an agreement, a settlement, the ACAS conciliator does have the power to extend the conciliation period by two, up to two weeks um, to help with that process. At the moment, there isn't a date for implementation of this, it's just a proposal, so there's no legislation that's going through um, the, the Parliament. Um, but that's one to keep an eye on because I think that will potentially make a, a good difference to how we do things when there's a claim. Um, the other proposal that the government has at the moment, well, they've actually implemented a pilot scheme of um, sending staff from small and medium enterprises for mediation training in Cambridge and Manchester only at the moment um, to help staff to resolve workplace disputes internally within the workplace. So they're providing free training, the government's providing free training in Cambridge and Manchester for that. Remains to be seen whether that will be rolled out more widely. Um, rapid resolution, this is a proposal that the government has to make it quicker and cheaper to resolve um, disputes about low value, straightforward matters like holiday pay claims. Now having just recently done a holiday pay claim for a client, I can tell you it's not straightforward at all. It might, only be, it might be low value but um, the claim wasn't straightforward and generated quite a lot of um, expensive legal costs for the respondents on that, so I'm not quite sure whether that's going to work or not. But it may work for other um, low-value claims, 
to do with arrears of pay and that sort of thing. Again, there's no date for imp implementation of that at the moment. I think the key proposal is the proposal to charge fees for bringing an employment tribunal claim. And this is something that's been subject to consultation, which closed on the 6th of March. And it's not, the government wasn't consulting on whether to in, in, introduce fees, it was consulting on how it's going to do that. So I think there definitely will be fees going forwards for bringing an employment tribunal claim. It's just the format of those fees and how they're actually going to work in practice. And the government had two proposals, the first of which was that the claimant would have to pay a fee on submission of the ET1, followed by a further fee um, when you're coming up to the hearing date. Now my, my thought on that is, actually by the time you're getting to the hearing date, you've incurred a lot of the costs of a tribunal claim anyway, so if this is supposed to act as a disincentive for the claimant um, and perhaps encourage them to withdraw their claim if they have to pay another fee, actually how close you have to pay that fee up to the hearing date is going to be quite important um, in determining that. The second proposal, or the second option, if you like, that the government was, was consulting on was just having one fee um, payable depending on the value of the sums being claimed in the particular case um, and the complexity of the case. And the examples that they gave were the fee would be £200 if it was a fairly straightforward case and the claimant was claiming up to £30,000. Um, and if the claimant was claiming over £30,000, there'd be a fee of £1,750. So that's quite a significant sum, and it may act as a disincentive to claimants to, to bring claims. Again, I haven't had the outcome of the consultation process yet from the government, so we haven't got an implementation date for that, or indeed any more firm proposals about how that's going to work in practice. But the government did say that they wish to introduce this by December 2013. Um, the other things that the government's proposing is to try and limit compensation and discrimination claims. Again, they've not really gone into detail about that at the moment, so I, I won't say anything more about that. And the tribunal rules of procedure are also being reviewed. Again, that's not probably particularly relevant um, on a day-to-day -day basis. And finally, um, the government's proposing to introduce financial penalties for employers who lose tribunal claims. And again, this is probably the, the other key thing, apart from the introduction of fees for bringing a claim. My view on this is that it's basically a tax on employers because the financial pay penalties are payable to the exchequer. They are in the judge's discretion, so the judge can decide not to impose a penalty where there's been what the government described as an inadvertent error, an inadvertent breach of, of some law. Um, and the figures, that the financial penalties are arguably fairly low because there's a minimum of £100 and a maximum of £5,000, but that's reduced by 50% if you pay within 21 days. So in comparison to the amounts of compensation you're likely to be paying in an unfair dismissal claim, for example, that's not a massive amount more. Um, but again, there's no uh, date for implementation of that at the moment either. So these are all things that are very much in the pipeline and watch this space to find out more. Um, I'm going to move on to talk about pensions auto-enrolment. And as you may well have heard, with effect from the 1st of October this year and going onwards, because there's a phased implementation, employees, employers are going to have to enrol employees in a qualifying pension scheme and also make mandatory pension contributions into that scheme. 
of at least 3%. And how that's going to work is that if the employer contributes the minimum of 3%, the worker will have to contribute 4% of salary or uh, eligible earnings, and then the employee will get 1% tax relief on that, so as in 1% of their salary as tax relief on that. So there'll be a total of at least 8% pension contributions. Of course, the employer can, and, and you may well already, be contributing more than 3% into your employee's pension schemes, and in which case that reduces the amount that the worker has to has to contribute, although, of course, they can contribute more. Um, the the um, contributions side of things is also being phased in. So not only is the mandatory um, enrolment being phased in, but also the contributions are being phased in too. And it depends on the size of the employer as to when you're going to be needed to do this. Um, just by way of an example, for employers with between 160 and 249 employees, the staging date, as they call it, is the 1st of April 2014. But there's a great long list of different dates, so it's, it's quite specific about what particular date um, applies. And it's the number of employees in your PAYE scheme on the 1st of April this year. So um, you should be able to work out today when your staging date is, because you'll know how many employees you had on the 1st of April. I said employees, actually it applies to workers, so it is much broader than just um, your, your employees under an employment contract. It can include temporary workers and it will include agency workers. So agency workers are going to be entitled to be um, enrolled in your pension scheme and to have pension contributions, um, which is obviously going to be a ma well, massive disincentive to engaging agency workers. Many existing pension schemes that you probably already, you know, you probably already have will be um, qualifying pension schemes, so you won't have to change your pension scheme necessarily. But if you don't, if it doesn't qualify, there is the National Employment Savings Trust, which the government has introduced, um, which you can use as the pension scheme to put the contributions in. Just having looked at the pension regulator's website yesterday, um, when I was looking at the staging dates for this, they do say on their website that they'll contact you between six and 12 months before your staging date to sort of check you've got everything in place. So if you haven't heard from them yet, maybe you don't quite need to worry. Um, and also, just to flag that it, it's illegal to encourage workers to opt out of um, the uh, en automatic enrolment. I mean, employees can, can opt out, but you shouldn't give them any incentive to opt out. In particular, you shouldn't have any recruitment practices which encourage employees to opt out, so say some sort of bonus if they do or whatever. And also, you shouldn't treat a worker unfairly or put them at a disadvantage because of auto-enrolment. Finally, I'm just going to move on to look at the proposed changes to the data protection regime. And this has come about as part of a trend that we're seeing of increased burden about data protection. So much closer regulation and much, much higher fines. Um, the Information Commissioner got powers fairly recently to impose significant fines now on employers for breaches of data protection legislation. Um, so as you'll know, at the moment we have the Data Protection Act 1998. That obviously was well before the internet got going and lots of devices like iPads and things were around. So uh, starting to be perceived to be a, a lag in terms of data protection and where technology is. So the EU has proposed a new draft regulation which if it's implemented, will mean that there's a uniform framework across Europe for data protection, 
which involves some fairly wholesale changes, including a requirement that larger companies will have to have a data protection officer. And you probably can't, and this is the key thing for employers, you probably can't rely on employees' consent to data processing. So normally, as you'll probably be aware, you know, you just have a clause in your employment contract that says, I consent to my data being processed, and that will be sufficient. Going forwards, any consent has to be specific, informed, and explicit. So just relying on a, on a clause in a contract like that probably isn't going to be enough. Um, you probably will need to show that it falls within one of the permitted means of processing that's allowed by the regulation. I don't propose to go into any more detail on that at the moment because we're fairly short on time. But if anyone needs any more information about that, then please contact one of the team. Uh, what The thing to say about this is the it's very much a draft regulation. And when the previous regulations were introduced way back before 1998, it took five years for them to be implemented. So I think this is something that while you should have it in the back of your mind, it's not going to be particularly relevant anytime soon, and we'll keep you posted with any updates. Okay, I'm going to hand over to Chris for a case law update. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, there's uh, plenty of stuff we could talk about from, in terms of cases from the past uh, 12 months or so. Um, as usual, the tribunals, of course, have been very busy, and we could have spent the whole session talking about uh, cases. Um, what I've tried to do as we can't talk about everything, is pick out a sample of cases covering the entire lifespan of the employment relationship. So starting with a, a claim, a case dealing with a claim from an unsuccessful job applicant, moving on to some cases about changes to uh, terms and conditions uh, imposed by employers, quite a topical issue, a lot of employers are looking at that at the moment uh, as a way of trying to reduce costs. A couple of cases looking at philosophical beliefs in the workplace and the extent to which they're protected. Some age discrimination cases arising on termination of employment and then uh, a case dealing with references given after the end of employment. So starting with uh, this claim from an unsuccessful job applicant. Um, quite a, a recent case, the judgment's only just come out in the past few days. Uh, concerned a lady who applied for a job and was rejected without interview. Uh, the job she applied for was with a company in Germany. Uh, she was a Russian national. Uh, she, the job was for a software developer, a job that she was qualified um, for, but as I say, she didn't get an interview. After she was unsuccessful, the job was re-advertised on the internet. She reapplied and again was rejected without any explanation or without interview or anything like that. So she brought discrimination claims and said, uh, clearly, the reason you've rejected me must be because of my age or my gender or my race, because I'm qualified to do the job. The company said, well, no, that's not that's not true. Just because we rejected you doesn't mean there's a discrimination situation here. Um, so the issue that, that went up to the ECJ was, could she get details of the person who was successful? Um, she, should, could she get the file for the successful applicant? Um, and as I say, the case went all the way to the ECJ. Um, who said, no, not necessarily, she can't get the details of the successful applicant, but if the employer is not willing to provide it, you may well be able to draw an inference of, of discrimination. If the employer is not willing to say, well, the person that got the, uh, got the job got it for this reason, that may well lead to an inference of discrimination. So I guess the, the, the takeaway message from, from the case is it just reinforces the need to be able to show your, uh, your recruitment is conducted by reference to sort of objective business criteria that you, that you can actually demonstrate 
and the need to, to be prepared to cooperate and provide a little bit of information to unsuccessful candidates. Um, because if you don't, there may well be an inference of uh, discrimination and then you'll be on the back foot trying to respond to those. The next couple of cases uh, deal with changes to terms and conditions. Uh, as I say, that's quite a topical issue. We've dealt with a lot of um, situations over the past six to 12 months where employers have tried to, to reduce salaries, reduce benefits and so on as a way of, uh, of cutting, their, cutting their costs as an alternative to redundancies. This particular case, the employer was having trading difficulties, needed to reduce its, um, its costs, so it asked employees to take a 5% pay cut. Had lots of meetings with the employees, um, and following those meetings sent out a voting slip. Uh, 77 of the employees said yes, uh, 7 abstained initially, 4 said no initially. Of those 4 who said no initially, 2 were dismissed for unrelated uh, gross misconduct reasons, so that left 2 people who had said no, who were dismissed and offered uh, new terms. One of those was the individual who brought a claim, in this case Mr Booth. He appealed against his dismissal. Um, he was offered the chance to, to come back uh, on, on the new terms with a review of the, uh, of the new terms in six months' time, and he declined that. Um, so the question was, was the dismissal to impose the new terms unfair? The Employment Tribunal initially said yes, it was unfair. It was reasonable for him to refuse to accept a 5% pay cut. Um, happily, from the employer's perspective, the Employment Appeal Tribunal reversed that decision and said, no, it's not necessarily unfair. Um, the Employment Tribunal focused on the wrong question. It's not, was it reasonable for the employee to refuse? Was the employer acting reasonably in asking the employee to agree to the change? And that approach is something that's sort of reinforced in the, in the second case I've picked out on changes to terms and conditions. Here, similar sort of situation, the employer was seeking to remove a bonus entitlement from certain employees. Um, a twist in this case was it was offering to buy out the bonus, a one-off payment to, to get rid of the bonus for the future. Said to the employees, if, look, if we can't do a deal on this, we can't reach agreement, we're going to dismiss you and rehire your new terms and conditions. The negotiations were unsuccessful, so the employees were duly dismissed and offered new terms with no buyout payment, um, and there were some claims arising out of that. And again, the question was, was that an unfair dismissal? to dismiss and rehire in the new terms with the added argument that was raised in this case um, was it unfair to have offered the buyout bonus during the negotiations but not offer it or not give it when you dismissed and, and forced the employees to take new terms um, and again helpfully the Employment Appeal Tribunal said no um, the question is did the employer act reasonably it had a good business reason for removing the bonus so that was a reasonable thing to do it tried to consult the, the employees, so it acted reasonably in that sense. And it was reasonable not to give the employees the buyout payment um, when it was imposing the change because it didn't get any of the benefits it would have had through, through agreement. So it could have given the buyout payment if it had got agreement from the employees, thereby removing the risk of the claim. Without that agreement, it was reasonable not to. So two quite employer-friendly decisions in, in terms of changing terms and conditions which I think is a recognition of the economic environment we're in, that uh, businesses are facing some difficult times, and suggest that if an employer's got a good business reason, it consults with employees, it looks at alternatives, um, and applies changes sort of fairly and consistently across the board, so don't necessarily exclude senior management, for example, you may well be able to justify um, changing terms and conditions detrimentally. A couple of cases now on uh, philosophical beliefs. Um, as you know, 
Um, the discrimination laws protect uh, employees against discrimination on the grounds of their religion or on the grounds of um, a similar belief. And there's been quite a lot of uh, case law over recent months about what kind of beliefs qualify for protection. There was a case two, three years ago called Nicholson and Granger, which opened the floodgates to some extent in this area. That involved a guy who um, had belief in climate change, and that belief was found to be protected. Uh, and the court in that case set down some, some guidelines uh, to look at in deciding whether a belief is protected. So is it um, a belief and not just an opinion? Is it worthy of protection in a democratic society? Um, is there a level of cogency and seriousness about the belief? So that's the sort of backdrop for these two decisions. Um, and you can form your own view about whether these two particular beliefs are um, sufficiently serious and cogent to, to deserve protection. Uh, so the first case is um, a guy who had a fervent opposition to fox hunting. Apparently he campaigned against blood sports. Um, he was a hunt saboteur. He was a vegan. Um, I'm not sure how relevant that is, but he was a vegan. Um, worked as a gardener for an um, organisation known as Orchard Park, which had on its premises a farm shop selling meat products, which he didn't like, but he decided to put up with it because he wanted to take home his salary. When he was subsequently dismissed, the employer said, it's because we don't need someone in that job anymore. If a, a quasi-redundancy situation. He said, actually, it's because of my beliefs, and that's a protected, that's a protected belief under the discrimination rules. Um, and the employment tribunal down in Southampton said, yep, that's a protected belief, satisfied the, the Nicholson and Granger criteria. Um, so it, it seems to me that's possibly a bit of a lowering of, of, of the threshold perfectly respectable belief to hold, but does it need to be protected under the discrimination laws? Um, different question. Um, one of the issues that was looked at in there was, did his belief have sufficient cogency given that he worked for an organisation that he knew was selling meat products? Um, and the, the tribunal slightly glossed over that and said that any kind of belief there's going to be compromise, it's going to come up against the realities of everyday life, so that wasn't a problem. So that, that warranted protection, what about um, a belief in the higher purpose of public service broadcasting, does that warrant protection under the discrimination rules? Um, again, concerned a guy who worked in this case for the BBC and was dismissed following performance management proceedings, and he said his dismissal was because of this belief he held, which he had been articulated in the higher purpose of public service broadcasting. Um, and again, that was found to be uh, worthy of protection. Um, so again, he could rely on the on the discrimination rules. And the judge said uh, he was influenced by the fact that the importance of public service broadcasting has been the subject of academic commentary, apparently. Um, and he was also influenced by the strength of the claimant's feelings. The claimant felt very passionate about this. Um, which, to my mind, is, again, I question whether that's a relevant um, consideration because the, the strength of a belief doesn't necessarily equate to whether it's worthy of protection. So, potentially a bit of a nutter's charter. Um, if you ask me, but uh, that's just my opinion. Moving on now to age discrimination. I've picked out three age discrimination cases that have come up in recent months. The first two are looking at the question of uh, looking at situations where an employer was trying to justify age discrimination in effect um, on the grounds of costs, although they didn't express them in, in quite those ways. The first involved a situation where uh, employers tried to reduce headcount. Um, had an allocated budget of £12 million to do that. 
sought to reduce headcounts uh, by asking for voluntary redundancies um, and the employer ended up with more applicants than it needed so it chose to dismiss the applicants who would be cheapest. That particularly affected people in the 50 to 54 age bracket because people in that bracket could retire early with an unreduced pension so potentially a big cost to the employer. So people in that bracket ended up not having their applications for voluntary redundancy accepted and some of them wrought claims. And the question was, was that age discrimination? Because in effect, you're excluding a particular group from uh, accepting voluntary redundancy. Um, again, the Employment tri Tribunal and the Employment Appeal Tribunal came to different views. The Employment <coughs> Tribunal said, uh, yes, it was age discrimination. There would have been a cost, but that cost was affordable, um, which was quite a bold decision because apparently the extra cost would have been 19.7 million pounds. Um, so it would have blown the budget. Um, to say the least. The Employment Appeal Tribunal reversed that and said no there was a legitimate aim here to keep your cost within the specified budget. How, the legitimate aim in itself wasn't directly discriminatory but the way it was implemented had a discriminatory impact but that could be could be justified because the whole purpose of this was, was to save money within a particular budget. In a sort of similar vein we've got the case of Woodcock and Cumbria Primary Care Trust. You might have heard about this already because it's been knocking around um, for a little while and gone up through the gone up through the court process. Um, following the merger of some primary care trusts, Mr. Woodcock was put at risk of redundancy initially in September 2006. That process was put on hold for a while, but it looked like there was going to be some alternative employment for him to do. The process was then reinitiated in April 2007. He was invited to a meeting in April 2007, which didn't happen. Had to be rescheduled. Um, and the employer had some difficulties in, in organising another meeting with Mr Woodcock and it came to the conclusion that Mr Woodcock was deliberately trying to delay the process um, because he had a 12 month notice period and if he could have his notice period expire on or after the 17th of June 2008 he would hit his 50th birthday and get an enhanced pension which was going to cost the organisation uh, between half a million and a million pounds. When it twigged what Mr Woodcock was up to, it gave him notice on 23rd of May, so that would expire before the, the June 2008 date, and then was able to restart the redundancy process on the 6th of June 2007. And Mr Woodcock said, this is age discrimination, you've circumvented the redundancy process just to save money, and you're doing that because of my age in effect. And one of the issues the Court of Appeal had to look at was, well, to what extent um, can the um, employer rely on cost as a, as a justification for a redundancy? And previous case law sort of says that you can't just rely on cost, you have to have cost plus, cost plus another reason. Um, the Court of Appeal slightly fudged the issue and said you can't just rely on cost, but in effect found that the employer could just rely on cost. The Court of Appeal said you can't just rely on cost, and it wasn't the employer wasn't just relying on cost, it was also relying on the fact it wanted to make this person redundant. But actually that's not really the issue here, it was the fact that it made him redundant in the way that it did and at the time that he did that he was complaining about, not the redundancy as such. Um, but uh, it did let the employer get away with this, it did say okay it wasn't age discrimination, so it slightly fudged the reasoning but came to that, a helpful decision for the employer. So I think there is a bit of a trend we can see here that age discrimination is um, perhaps a little bit easier to justify. Than, than other forms of discrimination. There's no official um, guidance or cases to that effect, but there does seem to be a trend um, from the courts to that effect. Similarly, the last case on age discrimination 
um, this time dealing with retirement ages, um, again, is, seems to be taking quite a sort of relaxed attitude um, to age discrimination. Uh, concerned an individual um, whose name's on the slide, you can see, you can pronounce his name more than one way. I'm going to go for Fuchs um, myself. He was subject to a compulsory retirement at age 65, and the question was whether that retirement age could be justified. And the ECDA said, yes, you can justify the retirement age. The employer had two legitimate aims. Uh, firstly, it wanted a mix of ages working in the, in the civil service. And secondly, it wanted to avoid disputes at the end of someone's working life about their fitness to work, which to my mind is exactly the sort of stereotypical view that age discrimination is supposed to avoid, the idea that we're all, we're all going to become doddery and incompetent. Um, it, it, age discrimination is supposed to avoid those types of assumptions, I would have thought, but, um, but the ECJ said that's a legitimate um, that's a legitimate assumption aimed to rely on. And they also said it was proportionate um, to do that on the grounds that um, this guy was going to get um, a, a pension of 72% of his, his salary. So the impact on him wasn't as great as it might have been if he had a, had a less generous uh, salary uh, pension. So in all, we've got three age discrimination cases, all of which are taking quite a pro-employer um, approach. Um, the last case I want to talk about before the coffee break deals with references after someone's left employment. Um, you might hope that when someone's gone that's the end of um, any potential for litigation with them. Um, sadly not. Um, this case concerned a guy who worked at Liverpool City Council as a social worker, left to join Sefton Borough Council and got a satisfactory reference. After he'd left, some concerns came up about his work um, whilst he'd been at Liverpool City Council and the council decided it couldn't investigate those because he'd left. The individual then applied for a different job at Sefton Borough Council but came back to Liverpool Council for another reference. They gave another reference but this one referred to the fact that these new uninvestigated concerns had come out. But it was quite careful to say there are these concerns we haven't been able to investigate and can't draw a conclusion positive or negative. Um, but because of having said this in the second reference, Mr Jackson didn't get the second job at Sefton Borough Council. So he brought a claim against Liverpool Council because of the second reference that was given. And could that claim succeed? The general principles of references is they must be true and accurate. The individual facts in them have to be accurate. And the overall impression that must be of, in them must be fair. And the High Court initially said... Okay, the facts were accurate, but the overall impression wasn't, wasn't fair. It wasn't fair to refer to uninvestigated concerns. And also said, you know, if the employer was uncomfortable about this, it could always have not given a reference. Um, the Court of Appeal took a more helpful and more pragmatic view and said, actually, the facts were accurate and the reference overall was fair because the reference made clear that they hadn't been investigated and therefore couldn't reach conclusions, positive or negative either way. And also said... Um, actually not giving a reference in itself could have been problematic. That might have, have led to inferences um, about their views of this individual. Um, so the, I guess the sort of message from the Court of Appeal is, um, as an employer, if you tell it as it is, in effect, um, you're, you're probably going to be all right. Before we break for coffee, I guess what conclusions can we draw from all of these cases um, about how employment tribunals and courts are approaching um, sort of employment issues at the moment. My feeling is we are seeing the tribunals and courts actually taking quite a pragmatic view um, at, at the moment. A lot of the issues employers are facing, recognising that we're in a time of economic challenges. 
Um, so that's quite helpful from an employer's perspective. Um, but I suppose subject to the caveat that they haven't completely vacated the ivory tower. Um, you think about some of the cases on philosophical belief, for example, that we talked about. Um, but there is a sort of trend, I think, towards taking a slightly more pragmatic approach um, in relation to all the, these issues. Uh, we're going to break for coffee now anyway, and after um, coffee, I think David is going to talk about your top few to-do list points uh, for the next few months. Okay, folks. Um, well, we've uh, refreshed ourselves. I'm going to talk a bit about an action list for 2012. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to be looking at some trends, some minefields, and some things that you may think about doing, you may be doing, um, or potentially to put on your action list. So what am I going to cover? Um, I'm going to cover uh, the Olympics, uh, apparently in a sporting event that's taking place in about 100 days, involving lots of odd-shaped people. Um, I may sound bitter, but that's because I didn't get any, any tickets. Um, so I am. Uh, next, um, I'm going to talk about getting a house in order. Um, a theme that we're seeing is a lot of people are taking stock. They're looking at their foundations, they're looking at where they are, what they've got, is it working? What changes do they need to be need to make, and are they aware, are they aware of any minefields, particularly in relation to atypical workers? So I'll come on to that. I'm then going to move on briefly to discrimination and whistleblowing. Um, as uh, we heard earlier, we're getting rid of the um, the, the one-year limit on unfair dismissal claims. We're expecting more people to bring discrimination claims, more whistleblowing claims. So I'm going to look at a couple of trends that are arising in that context. I'm then going to move on to 2P. Uh, that's normally the topic that uh, makes everyone go to sleep. Um, of course, but actually, it's really important when there is a change of services. Um, it has quite important implications for employers. And there have been some recent cases that really do fundamentally change when 2P may or may not apply. And it is, it, 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 there is a potential to be caught out. So it's something you do need to be aware of. And finally, I'm going to touch very briefly on social media. We've done a lot on social media uh, over the last year. But I'm just going to give a couple of recent examples and, and in particular focus uh, on some of the damage uh, that your employees can do to your business. So the Olympics. Uh, start off with a few uh, statistics. There are 26 sports, 1,700 athletes, uh, half a million spectators, and 4.7 billion people are going to watch it on TV. Presumably not the whole thing, uh, but at least in part. Um, so, uh, it has the potential to cause disruption to your business, particularly if your business is based in London or otherwise near uh, an Olympic site. And there is a whole host of guidance that has been issued by ACAS, the government, even the, the Olympic uh, body itself, as to steps an employer should be taking uh, to deal with the situation. It's not really brain surgery, but it is important you focus your mind on it. Fundamentally, the most important thing is to assess what the impact the Olympics can have on your business in terms of staff getting there, customer demands, delivering whatever you need to deliver to make your business successful. And then the advice then is to look at those characteristics, look at the disruption that can be caused, and to devise a policy that works for the business and works for the employees. I think there are four principal aspects to this. The first one is look at the expectations of staff. Um, the government um, sent around uh, an email the other day and, and basically it's an estimate of the additional journey time that will take people to get into the office. Sometimes it's many, many hours. 
And really what you need to do is set out the expectations of staff. It may take them longer to get in, may take them a, an hour and a half, say, but you need to make it clear that we expect you to leave early to get here in good time, if that's what you need. The other steps you can put in your process are temporary, more structured arrangements to help your business and to help your staff. And they tend to fall into two camps. The first one is some sort of flexible working. Everyone coming in early, everyone le leaving in mid-afternoon to avoid some of the main Olympic sessions. The other thing, of course, you can do is homeworking, getting people to work at home, and if you're doing it on a temporary basis, putting some rules around that. Um, one of the things the, the guidance does suggest is getting people to trial this. Do they have the right equipment at home? Do they have the right setup? And the other thing to bear in mind is if you have lots of staff working from, from home, there is an issue or there is a concern as to whether broadband speed uh, will actually cover demand and the impact that that could potentially uh, have on the business. The final thing that you really um, need to, to put in uh, your policy is you need to deal with the consequences of not complying. What happens if someone's malingering and they don't turn up, they're watching the final or something? What are the consequences of that going to be? How serious are you going to take it? Um, the next step, once you've devised your policy, is to take some action to test it. Is it going to work? Have you rolled it out in your organisation? Are your managers bought in, etc.? The final thing to bear in mind about the Olympics is the potential for discrimination. If you have a TV and you only show events where UK athletes are likely to do well, then of course that may potentially alienate people from other nationalities and that could cause discrimination claims. I'd suggest it's unlikely, but there is a potential. So now I'm going to move on to getting your house in order. As I mentioned a few moments ago, a lot of uh, businesses are taking the time now to, to focus on what they've got, the building blocks, the foundations, have you got everything in place? And in doing that, they're looking at the life cycle uh, of the employment relationship, the wheel of fortune as I've uh, described it. Firstly, what you need to do is look and think, you know, are your arrangements working effective, effectively? For example, do you have the right employee representation in place? Do you want employee representation? Do you want to get rid of employee representation? <coughs> and what can you do about that? Um, next, other issues that you might want to concern is whether your bonus and commission arrangements are working properly. Often these arrangements go out of date in two or three years' time. People find ways of working around them to maximise their incentive, and they need to be revised, subject to the terms and, and the points Chris was discussing earlier. Other issues you might want to consider is your redundancy terms, your enhanced redundancy terms. Have they become contractual by customer practice? And if there's a risk of that, are there steps that you can take to change that position? Maybe articulating that they will no longer apply in the future to applicable staff members. Once you've done that, you need to look at your core employment terms. Do you have the right core terms in place? Do you have the right to change duties? Do you have the right to change reporting structures? Do you protect confidentiality? Do you have the right to put people on garden leave in appropriate circumstances? Are your existing contracts up to the job and giving you enough protection during the term? The next thing to review is policies. Now, a lot of businesses kind of ignore policies. You know, why are they relevant? Why are they important? But policies in an employment context are fundamentally important because they set rules for your business. And if you have fair rules, even if they're tough rules, and you apply them consistently, then the employment tribunals will stand behind you 
and they will say that anything you will do is fair and lawful. So that's particularly relevant in relation to redundancy arrangements, monitoring, um, performance, discipline, and social media. Some of these topics I'll come on to later. The final thing you need to, to think about in the, the life cycle of the employment is, of course, restrictive covenants. If someone leaves, what steps are you taking to protect your business? Um, points to bear in mind is that restrictive covenants are assessed looking at the legitimate interest when the person signed the contract and not when they, not when they left. So if they were the T-boy when they joined and they left as the managing director, you may have trouble enforcing the restrictive covenants unless new covenants were issued during the term of the uh, uh, arrangement. Now, other issues with restrictive covenants arise where people work on a cross-border basis. It's fine having them in the UK. The UK courts may approve them on an international basis, but then you need to go and get them enforced. And enforcing restrictive covenants, individual jurisdictions will look at them having regard to their own particular public policy uh, issues and concerns. And it's important that if people are working abroad, that you get the situation reviewed to see whether they will protect your business adequately. The final thing in the, in the context of restrictive covenants is to think about whether they will work in the context of social media, and particularly in the context of LinkedIn. When people leave a business on LinkedIn, they just have to say, I've joined X. And everyone who's LinkedIn with them will know that. And that's not solicitation. That's just making an announcement. So the only way that you can protect your business in that situation is to put in some covenants dealing with dealing with your former customers or your former suppliers or whatever it happens to be. So going forward, non-dealing provisions are more likely to be enforceable and are becoming much more important. It's imperative you re review your restrictive covenants to make sure that they cover that eventuality. So next up, I'm going to um, touch very briefly on atypical workers. Um, now, on this slide, I've listed the various types of atypical workers you know, agency workers, apprentices, casual workers, consultants, fixed terms. There's a whole plethora of different types of uh, atypical workers that now exist, and a whole host of legislation that relates to them. And I suppose, in terms of getting your house in order, it's important <coughs> that you make sure that you are complying with the laws that relate to each applicable category. But in terms of the trends, I suppose, what are the trends? What are we seeing happening in the employment courts and uh, in terms of disputes in the workplace. Um, I'm currently noticing three things. Um, the first one is um, with consultants. During the recession, a lot of companies brought in consultants. They didn't want employees. They wanted to keep everything off the balance sheet. They expected that they would only be there for a short period of time. But those individuals have been retained. And one of the issues that arises, should they be treated as employees? And in particular, when you come to terminate their employment, can they bring a claim for, for example, unfair dismissal? And of course, are there tax implications because they should be taxed under the PAY scheme with appropriate deductions being made? Now, the test as to whether someone is an employee or a consultant, you look at whether they have to perform the services personally themselves. You look at the mutuality of obligation. Does the employer have to give them work and does the consultant have to do it? Does the employer control the way that work is undertaken. But the other thing that the courts have struggled with is to look at the nature of the arrangement. 
And the example of this is the Autoclens case, which went all the way up to the Supreme Court. That case involved uh, individuals who were cleaning cars. And they, had, they were engaged as consultants, and in the consultancy agreement, they had a statement, there is no mutuality of obligation. You can substitute others to do your work. All great stuff, all points to consultancy arrangements. But the individuals, kind of after a couple of years, they turned around and said, well, it's all very well, but actually that doesn't work in practice. We can't substitute anyone, and we have to do our job. We, we're controlled in how we do it. So the agreement doesn't reflect what's happening. And the question arose whether they should be treated as employees. And as I said, this went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, look, it's all very well having a contract, but that's just one thing you need to look at. And you don't look at necessarily the intention of the parties when they entered into the contract. What you look at is what happens essentially during the arrangement in practice. That's the core test. And if the factors point towards employment, then they should be treated as employees. And as a trend, we're seeing a lot of consultancy arrangements unravel one way or another. So it's one thing that when you go back to your business, you need to check. Other trends um, relate to home working in particular, flexible working, people working from home, often on an ad hoc basis. And what we're what, what a lot of employers are finding is look, you know, we, we've got this policy in place, but we don't actually think they're working. Actually, we try and contact them, and they have that out of office on their computer, and they can't be contacted. What do we do about that? They've been doing it for six months. No one's checked. No one's monitored. No one's controlled the situation. Well, it's time to take stock. It's time to get a policy in place to make it clear that you can monitor, to make it clear that you can check up, maybe by phoning or making sure that they're working in a, in a proportionate way. To have the right to change the arrangements if they are not working effectively. If you think someone is only 40% effective when they're working from home, then you might want to have a policy that says, well, that's fine, but we're going to stop it. It's not working for us. You come into the office and you continue with your work. So again, policy driven. The final trend relates to part-time workers. Um, and what we've seen before the, the employment tribunals is a 300% increase in the number of uh, employment tribunal claims relating to part-time employees. And there's a number of reasons for that. The first one is that there are more part-time workers as a result of the recession. The second one is that there are challenges for an employer in assessing how the person should be compared with someone who does the same or broadly similar work, bearing in mind that the Court of Appeal, I had to go all the way to the Court of Appeal, had to decide whether part-time firefighters were broadly similar to full-time firefighters. Incidentally, they were, but it had to go all the way to the Court of Appeal to determine that. But one of the main issues here is people assume that people working part-time don't want to progress their careers, and therefore they get overlooked for promotion. And those assumptions are leading to a whole host of cases. So if you have part-time workers, you need to check the arrangements in place for them. And that leads me into discrimination and whistleblowing. I've got a slide here, the new dawn. There is an anticipation, there is an expectation that we are going to see an increase in discrimination and whistleblowing cases uh, for people who have less than two years service um, in the light of the new cha the changes to the unfair dismissal regime. I mean, in terms of the trends, um, particularly on, on discrimination, I think we're seeing two types of trends. The first one is we're seeing technology or social media 
leading to lots of discrimination claims. We're seeing lots of video clips on YouTube being circulated amongst offices, and in certain circumstances, those are inappropriate. And the, the thing to bear in mind is that a lot of discrimination is about context. You know, certain activities, certain, certain comments, in a certain context may be fine, but in another context, they can cause offence, and that's something that the courts are, are grappling with. Now, how is the circulation of this email perceived in a certain situation, often amongst various other uh, uh, criteria and factors? Um, the other trend that we are seeing is a lot of subtle claims, a lot of subtle claims for discrimination. A lot of people saying, I've been there for a period of time, I've been overlooked, I haven't had the pay rises, I haven't had the opportunities for training. And often these claims are very subtle, they're, they're sort of saying it's kind of institutional, it's kind of something, it's not expressed, but it's, and it, it may not come from expressed comments or be as obvious as that, but over a period of time, maybe over many years, it can be demonstrated that I have been le treated less favourably uh, than other employers. And those are quite difficult cases to deal with. They're time consuming because they involve a lot of witnesses, they involve a lot of evidence. And the way, well, one of the ways to try and avoid those claims is to make sure that your staff are trained on discrimination. They understand the potential for discrimination, they understand the form of discrimination, direct and indirect and harassment, victimisation, all the other constituent elements. And with that knowledge, they know that when they make decisions, they, they need to make decisions on genuine reasons and to encourage your managers to record those reasons, whether it's in appraisals, whether it's for promotion, or whether, whatever else it happens to be. So there is a kind of evidence trail which can defeat claims of that nature. Um, in terms of whistleblowing, um, as uh, uh, Virginia mentioned, um, the government is committed to getting rid of Parkinson's Sodexo. And Parkinson's Sodexo um, lowered the threshold for bringing a protected disclosure claim by saying it could be something that doesn't relate, doesn't have a public interest, but relates to the individual. I, for example, could say, you've not followed the grievance process, and arguably that would be a protected disclosure. So hopefully that will go. But what we are seeing is a little bit of a trend, people shaking the tree by doing something in order to inflame the situation or cause a reaction. I mean, one example we had is um, we had a very senior manager who wrote to all the other senior managers, including the chief executive, and said, the management is terrible, and by the way, they've got this financial problem. And what he was really doing is he was kind of setting himself up for a claim. And the CEO wanted to respond and retaliate. And they wanted to retaliate, how dare you say this about management? How dare you say this about the financial regulation? But also, how dare you raise it in this way? And we slightly tweaked the response, which um, managed to, to, to save them from a huge amount of compensation, just to say, you know, you can raise your concerns, but raise them in an appropriate way. Um, raise them in an appropriate manner. You don't have to copy everyone in. And because you've done it in an appropriate way, we can take action against you on that basis. We can retaliate because of the way you've done it, within acceptable bounds. But in terms of the substance of your complaint, we'll take that seriously and we'll deal with this in appropriate fashion. And that undermined that whistleblowing case uh, in that context. Next up, 2P. Um, so 2P strikes fear into uh, the hearts of most uh, HR practitioners. So as I mentioned earlier, 2P is an important piece of legislation if it applies staff transfer from 
employee, uh, employer A to employer B, all their rights, duties, powers, liabilities, under or in connection with their contract of employment transfer across. So it's a quite an important um, part of legislation. And the key issue is when does it apply? And that's something I'm going to focus on now. Um, now, the background to this is there is a traditional test, a test that's been with us for many years. It's the standard test. Is there a transfer of an undertaking? And does that undertaking or business unit retain its identity? The sim and, and the key thing here is the similarity of activities before the transfer and after the transfer. And in assessing the matter, the courts take into account all the relevant factors, buildings or movable property, whether staff are taking over, whether um, uh, you know, the valuable of intangible assets are transferred from one party to the other. Now the problem with the standard test is that when a service goes from party A to party B, Party B can say, look, I don't need staff, I don't need your assets, I don't actually need anything, I'm going to just run the service. And it can be argued that the standard test doesn't apply, which is particularly relevant in outsourcing situations. And the government introduced new regulation to deal with this. This came in in 2006, and it's called the Service Provision Change Test. And this applies where activities go from one party to another. And what the, 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 the conditions are, there needs to be an organised grouping of employees which has as its principal purpose the carrying out of the activities. Now there's no statutory test for activities and the common assumption is that activities was quite wide. If they're kind of broadly similar, that would be enough because there was no statutory definition. But what we're seeing now, we're seeing some cases come out and the, the cases don't follow that path at all. Um, the first one there, the Metropolitan uh, resources um, case saying that the activities must be fundamentally or essentially the same as those carried out by the alleged transfer. So they must be very, very similar. If they're different, 2P may not apply, staff may not transfer over, the outgoing contractor could be left with very expensive redundancy costs that they might not be expecting. And that could be a huge burden on a business. So the question is, how does that drill down? How does that work in practice? And what we've had over um, I think it's the last couple of months, we've had the enterprise management case. And that's looked at the um, Metropolitan Resources Test and applied it to the situation where um, a service relating to um, a, a provision of um, uh, services to schools was transferred from party A to party B. I won't go into the facts of the case, but essentially the key aspect is that the service was 15% different in the way that it was applied. And the, the question for the courts is, or, or, or was, was 15% sufficient to stop 2P applying? And the answer to that is yes. So if the services are 15% different, it is possible to stop 2P applying. And as I mentioned earlier, that's really important because the likelihood is that this will mean that 2P is on less likely to apply where there are even quite small changes and consequently the outgoing contractor can be left with very expensive redundancy costs. Um, the other point to bear in mind is we've also had a, you, you'll see from the, the test on the previous slide that one of the, the issues here was whether there is an organised grouping of employees. And the recent case on this was the Eddie Stobbard case. On that case, Eddie Stobbard had um, a day shift and a night shift. And the day shift just happened to principally work on the contract that was being transferred to another party. And the question is whether those, whether 2P applied, i.e. whether there was an organised grouping of employees. 
for the purposes of 2P and consequently the service provision change test applied in those circumstances. And the court said no, because it was more by luck than good management that most of the staff worked on the day shift. It was an accident rather than by design, and because of that, 2P didn't apply. So another essentially nail in the coffin in terms of preventing uh, 2P applying. So uh, uh, watch this space, but that's going to cause quite a lot of ructions, particularly in the outsourcing industry. Um, I'm now going to move on to social media. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we, um, we've written a number of articles on social media, so it's not something I'm proposing to go into in a huge amount of detail, other than to give this one example of an employee employed um, by Apple in Norwich. Now, he was having problems with his iPhone, which was apparently waking him up inadvertently at 3 o'clock in the morning. And he wrote this on his Facebook page. Um, the disillusioned worker also poked fun at the company's tagline when it offered Beatles songs on iTunes, which read, Tomorrow is another day that you'll never forget. He posted, Tomorrow's just another day that hopefully I will forget. Apple was very cross about that, for obvious reasons, and terminated his employment. One of the things there, and one of the main things about the case, the unfair dismissal case, is that Apple had a policy, and Apple's policy made it clear that e even comments made on a, on a seemingly private Facebook page can be taken into account and can lead to your dismissal. And they justify their actions. And that stresses the importance of a, uh, a social media policy. It's really important. Employees can do so much damage to your business by making uh, unfavorable comments. Um, the other thing I'll just very briefly mention is that in the US, there is a bit of a trend that when people join organizations, a lot of businesses have started asking staff for their passwords to Facebook. Um, it'd be interesting to see whether this crosses over the Atlantic so they can check up on what people say. And there's a big issue that, that in the US as to whether that's invading people's privacy. So we'll have to see how that works out. Um, but it's a constant battleground, and these things can really damage the business. So it's really important to have a policy in place. If you want a policy, come and see me afterwards. Um, the final thing, um, we promised to, to finish this session at half past. Um, the, the final thing to mention is, however bad things <coughs> seem to be within your organisation, I'm sure it's all going swimmingly well, by the way, um, just spare a thought uh, for the poor um, HR advisor at Aviva. Um, I don't know if anyone saw this uh, over the weekend, um, but I shall just read from the article uh, in the Telegraph. Uh, more than 1,300 workers at Aviva were shocked on Friday, this is last Friday, to receive an exit email from the HR department. There was a stunned silence at the London headquarters as staff across the division read the unsympathetic e uh, memo intended for just one employee. It, instru it instructed all Aviva invested workers to hand over company property and security passes on their way out of the business and submit all electronic passwords. The, start, the terse communication reminded all staff not to spell any company secrets. It read, I must remind you of your contractual obligations. You must not disclose any confidential information. Um, it just goes to show what a danger uh, email can be. Um, but an example, you know, whatever is happening in your organisation, there are always those that uh, are, are slightly worse off. Um, I'm going to leave it there. Um, we, as a team are around 
Uh, in fact, can, ev can everyone who is from the employment department um, put their hands in the air, just to identify themselves? Um, we are here, if anyone has any questions on any topic, we are providing a, 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 an employment law surgery, so come and ask us any questions you have on any topics. We'll do our best to answer them. If we can't answer them, we'll, we'll find the answer for you. Um, so feel free to, to come up. If anyone has any more general questions on anything that's been discussed today, we, we've got an opportunity now, so I don't know if anyone wants to raise any questions on, on, on the slides I've just been talking about or any other slides. Okay. Well, I suggest we leave it there. I just want to say you know, a big thank you for everyone for coming on such a wet day with all the tube problems, etc., etc. I hope you've enjoyed the session. Uh, we're very grateful that you've, um, you've, you've come. And please, uh, if you have any burning issues relating to your organisation, come and see a member of the team and uh, we'll, we'll deal with those during the surgery. So thank you very much.